Hello and welcome to another beautiful day to worship the Lord and to participate with Five Alive. It's good to have you joining us today. First of all, I want to start off with the fact that we are talking today about the resurrection of Jesus. And this coincides with a couple of different things that I want to discuss before we get into today's passage of scripture. And that is, as humans, we seem to be really good at hearing whatever we want to hear. And then there are those times when we just mishear or misunderstand or something just sounds really funny when we hear somebody saying something. Just out of curiosity, have you ever had a verbal misunderstanding with somebody else? Yes. Whether it's funny or serious. A yes. lot of the time. Yes. A lot of the time. The best, it's the best when it's serious. Because like they're having a serious conversation and you mishear one of the words they say and it just like ruins the whole seriousness of the conversation because you hear them say something completely different from what they said and it's just funny. Yeah, absolutely. It can turn something serious into something funny or something funny into something even more hilarious. A funny story. At the gym, I currently have a uh, trainer. I, I utilize a trainer. Mostly he helps spot me with my weights. But oftentimes we will be talking about how many times I'm going to do an exercise. And he will say 15, 1, 5, Pandra. So he'll give it to me three different ways. He'll say 15 in English, 1, 5, obviously in English, but just so that, that way there's an emphasis there. And then he says it in Hindi, Pandra, so that that way I don't get confused with 50, 5, 0, Pachas. And yes, there are times that sometimes an exercise will go that far. And so it's kind of funny. It always cracks me up whenever he says that because he'll look at me, he'll go 1, 5, 15, Pandra, and then I just bust out laughing because I think it's so hilarious that we are uh, that concerned with making sure that the other person understands that we're going to say it as often as we possibly can so that that person will understand what we say. Uh, so, Art, do you guys got any stories uh, that you think of that are funny miscommunication that's happened maybe in the last week or two? The same thing, like when I do sales, yeah. even I do the same thing. Like the, I say it's uh, $90, but they always heard it's 19 or it's uh, then I said it's $90. They say it's 19. I said nine zero nine zero nine. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I can think of, as I've learned Hindi, so I mean, do you think of all the mistakes that I make in English, which is my mother tongue, and yes, my mother's tongue is pink in my mother tongue of English. I also have made lots of mistakes in Hindi, which is absolutely hilarious. So like I'll be out talking to somebody and I'll be asking them for something or we'll be having a conversation. It doesn't matter which. And I'll say something and they will just look at me and be like, huh? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, did I say that wrong? And I'll re-say it again, huh? And I'll say it again and they, oh, wait a second, you're speaking to me in Hindi. And so they see me and they think, oh, this guy's only going to be able to speak in English. And whenever I can speak to him in Hindi, it confuses them that they can't even understand what I'm saying. And then once they realize, oh, you're speaking Hindi or, oh, you're speaking Punjabi, then, oh, then we can have a conversation. And then we can carry on a conversation for a lot longer period of time. Um, but that initial first shock that the person has of, oh, my goodness, this white guy is speaking in, what does he say? That's not English. Like they're preparing their mind to hear English and that's not what they hear. And uh, so there's miscommunication that happens there. How dangerous can misinformation be? 
quite dangerous. Quite dangerous. Especially whenever, like mommy, you said the speaking Hindi. I remember going to the Subziwala quite a lot, and she'd say, AKG Kargosh. <laughs> AKG Kargosh. <laughs> what she wants is Kajar, which is carrots. She's asking for bunny rabbits. <laughs> Always. So she wants a kg of rabbit meat, not a kg of carrots. Sure. I mean, she wants a kg of carrots, but she's asking for a kg of rabbits. (laughs) You just look at me and start laughing. Does the guy understood that you want carrot? You're like nibbling on a carrot as a hot. And they're like, not the bunny. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I did it again. <laughs> Every time. So, yeah. Can be dangerous. It can be dangerous. <laughs> can Absolutely. Be. So dangerous misinformation is out there often, not just in these fun moments, but there's fake news, which really can cause lots of problems for people. I think of a story that happened in the United States where there was a fake news story about a pizza parlor in Washington, DC. This was a couple of years ago. And they um they said that they were um, selling children as sex slaves out of this pizza place. And a guy got a gun, uh, several guns, went into the pizza place and started shooting the people inside of there. And the story was not true, but this gentleman kept hearing the news over and over again to the point where he was worried about and concerned about children, wanted to protect them. And so he went and stormed into a pizza parlor and killed people as a result. So fake news, this is dangerous. I think of how dangerous that is because what it starts with, it got pushed into the mass media side of things, got put into social media, got put up on Facebook. And as a result, this reaction happened that was dangerous and even deadly. That's no different than what gossip or rumors really are. And a lot of times we think that they're innocent. Oh, it's miscommunication. It's just a rumor. I heard so-and-so did this. And can you believe that they would do that? And we start spreading these rumors. And the Bible talks about rumors. It talks about gossip. It talks about fake news, which is as relevant to us today in the 21st century as it was when it was originally written. And so we have Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. This is one of the 10 commandments that was given to Moses, that we are not to talk falsely about each other. Another one is found in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8. It is again repeated in Proverbs 26, 22, word for word. Mallory is going to read that for us. The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Wonderful. So basically what that's saying is, is when you're telling stories about somebody, when you're gossiping, when you're spreading rumors, it is something that hurts so bad that it goes to the pierces to the wind wounds to the most deepest part of you and so the word there is used as belly because that's the way that the psalmist is describing your innermost feelings uh, those parts of your body that when you're laying in bed at night and you hear people talking bad about you again in your head even though you're all alone you have those replay back in your head because those wound you those hurt you those words are detrimental to somebody Uh, specifically to all of us as human beings. Uh, Then we have Exodus 23, verse 1. Aisha again. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person 
by being a malicious witness. And then we have Proverbs 20, verse 19, Mallory. He that goeth about as a talebearer revealeth secrets. Therefore meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. So again, we have the psalmist saying the person that is spreading rumors, that's telling stories, is damaging to those people that they're talking about. This is a type of warfare, really, and we've seen that transpire within the, the last several years that we now have social media warfare, that we have people that will attack each other through Twitter accounts, through Facebook through false reports, through messages, through all these different... So you think about all the ways that we can mess each other's lives up just within our community and then now broadcast it to the point where the whole entire world, no matter which continent you live on, you can be damaged by it. That's what we live in today. And the Bible is warning us about this type of warfare that can destroy us. So I want to ask you, do you participate in the rumor mill by spreading rumors or do you fact check information? I try my best to fact check information. And if the information I think comes from a credible source, then I spread that. But if that credible source isn't credible in what they're saying at that point in time, then you spread misinformation. But it's not your fault that they were the ones that were wrong. Like you believed this person to the point where you thought they were telling the truth. You thought they were a credible source. Like your family can tell you something. You can believe them because it's, it's your mom and dad. They wouldn't lie to you. But they could have heard that information and it could have been wrong information. And so you're spreading that wrong information unbeknownst to you. And so it can, it does harm people and it's hard to fact check everything. But definitely I try my best to tell the truth and everything. Yeah. I think of, we watched a TV episode of Blue Bloods last night, and there was a gentleman whose daughter, this is, all make, this is all a story, it's not true, but this has happened frequently, is that there is a gentleman whose daughter gets killed because a bad guy, a gunman, had come into her job place and shot her and killed her. Then he started getting phone calls from people who were saying that that was not true, that it was all fake, that she wasn't really dead, and that she was alive, and that it was a big conspiracy to try and um, say the police are bad, to say the government is bad, and to say that everybody was out to get this guy. And the guy believed the phone calls and the emails that he was getting from these people that were spreading these rumors even though the police officer saw his witness, his daughter, even tried to save her life, and she died. He didn't believe the police, the people in authority. Instead, he believed these people that got in contact with him through email, through text messaging, and through phone calls. And he would go every day for a week, and he would show the picture at a bus stand because his daughter had gone away the week before on a vacation, a short vacation, and he was just convinced that she got stuck on vacation and never came back home to her job. The police officers then picked him up, talked to him, said that they would take him to his daughter, and he went with them. And where did they go? They went to the mortuary, the morgue, where he then identified his dead daughter's body in this TV show. This is the kind of things that are going on here in the 21st century that people are trying to convince us that a rumor is true.
I can remember a time when I was a camp counselor at a kid's camp and we used the power of suggestion to convince a young man that we had shaved his eyebrows off while he was sleeping, that we had just, you know, removed his eyebrows. We said that we did that while he was sleeping. The bathrooms that we had at this camp didn't have any mirrors, so he couldn't see his reflection in a mirror and he would reach up and he would touch his eyebrows, but because we had gotten so many people in on the prank to tell him, oh man, you look kind of funny without your eyebrows, and people kept telling him that, the boy got convinced, and that we're talking about a 16-year-old boy here. We're talking about somebody two years away from 18 years of age, which is adulthood. We convinced him that we shaved his eyebrows off of his head, and we had done nothing to him other than verbally convincing him. And we got a lot of people in on it. And he panicked to the point where he got scared that he didn't have his eyebrows anymore. And we're like, it's okay, they'll grow back, you know, no worries, blah, 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 blah. But that's the power that suggestion can have, especially when you have a lot of people telling you something. And so just out of curiosity, and along with this same line of thinking, does news affect you emotionally? Yes. yes. And can news make you happy, sad? What, what is the biggest emotion that you get specifically when we turn NDTV on or when we turn on a, a network TV show that's giving us the news? How does it affect you? Does it make you super happy or does it make you super sad? Like what is the news? It usually do? makes me like mad and angry and people, other people get scared of the world. And the world is an awful place. I can't believe we live in it. Yeah. But that's... The point of the news is to share the bad. It's not always to share the best things out there. And so it usually makes you feel like everything's out to get you. Correct. And everybody is awful, even those who are in leadership meant to protect us. Yeah. Now, people have not changed in this respect of spreading news throughout the centuries. Verbal communication and face-to-face -face communication are the most effective ways of having a conversation with somebody. Even though, yes, sometimes we mishear things, they're still the most effective way, even here in the 21st century, put the text messages to the side because we mess those up all the time. Put the emails to the side because we really mess those up and we misunderstand what's being said in the email almost every time we read it. Or we overanalyze it to the point where we start reading stuff into it that makes no sense at all. And then we get to feeling bad or what have you. Sitting down face to face with somebody is the most effective way of having a conversation with somebody even now. Now let's go back 2000 plus years. Jesus of Nazareth is the man who healed lepers, the blind, demon possessed. He taught with authority. He fed 5,000 people. He rose Lazarus from the dead and people throughout Jerusalem. And remember, the city has increased inside with pilgrims for the Passover to the point where they are exploding in population and all these Thousands and maybe even millions of people have had the information relayed to them or they eyewitnessed the fact that they saw the hill Golgotha and they saw three men on crosses when they were coming into the city. They know that Jesus Christ of Nazareth died on Friday. And they know that because of eyewitness testimony or from somebody that they have heard from that was there Saturday guards are placed on duty to guard the tomb and a seal is placed on the tomb which would bring about the Roman wrath of anybody that would tamper with the tomb on Saturday or Sunday 
or what they thought maybe Monday or Tuesday. They just they made sure that there was this this tomb was being guarded. And yet on the third day, remember Jesus is laid into the tomb on Friday. Then we have all day Saturday. On Sunday morning, this is what happens. Xavier is going to read John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Blair is going to read 11 through 18. And then Xavier is going to close us 19 through 23. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father too, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, and even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the reading of God's word. Mary, Peter, and John at the beginning of today's reading have discovered an empty tomb. Where are the soldiers? Asleep. Not asleep. Eating breakfast <laughs> they're not eating breakfast if they left their post they would be killed so where are they at dead they're gone where's the stone where's the seal that was on the stone gone gone where's jesus's body gone where are the burial cloths in the tomb <laughs> yeah they're in the tomb we 
read last week that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took the proper way of preparing Jesus's body for the tomb, 75 pounds of oils and incense, and they wrapped his body, mummifying it basically for burial, which means that that would have been an awful lot of stuff to get off of somebody if their body was stolen. And why would you remove all of that, all of those linens, all of that wrapping? Why would you do it if you were stealing a body? Like people have stolen bodies before. People robbed the pyramids before. How many of the mummified tombs do we go into even today in archaeology? And is the mummy still in their tomb? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are there bandages still wrapped around the body? Yes. If you were to steal something from a tomb, would you steal a body or would you steal the goods, the stuff that was buried with them? The stuff that was buried with yeah, them. Yeah, usually you'd steal the stuff that was... So the fact that the cloths are there, and specifically, did you notice that it says that the face cloth was folded and placed at the head? Nobody stealing a body would do that. So why are these kinds of details written in the Bible unless it was true that Jesus rose from the dead? And why would somebody be so, if they were making up a story, why would they be so deliberate to talk about these kinds of things? Like the linens were all there, and yet the headpiece that was around his face was folded up and placed at the top where his head would have been. Why would you be that deliberate in writing a false story? You wouldn't. So therefore, the fact is that Jesus is risen. He is alive. He is alive today in the 21st century how do I know? Because he lives with me. He lives within my heart. A few things that I want us to notice. First of all, Jesus appears first to women. The first people to go to the tomb are women. Secondly, I want us to talk about Jesus's appearance to the boys. In other words, his appearance to his disciples. We've got to remember when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to the women's movement, when it comes to the fact that a woman's testimony wasn't even valid in the court system in this whole entire world a hundred years ago and all the way back here, why would an author of the Bible even mention that a woman was the first one to see Jesus? Her testimony is invalid up until about 100 years ago. How about the fact that women didn't even have the right to vote 100 years ago? New Zealand in 1918 was the first country to pass the women's right to vote. The United States passed it in 1920, and women didn't have the right to vote in India until 1950. We're talking less than 100 years ago that women had the right to vote. So basically, Women weren't that important. So why is that the first person that Jesus appears to? Another thing is, is often we forget that women back in the day, in the olden times, were treated as people's property. They were their husband's property. They weren't even seen as a person when it came to law. So why would Jesus show himself to women first? And no, Dan Brown and his books that he's written that are full of malarkey and 20th and 21st century bad detective work and thought, it's not because Jesus was married to any of them. The reality is, is that the women went there for a reason, and the reason that it's still in the Bible is very specific for us. What do you think it is? Well, it shows the fact that God values all people. Absolutely. So as a young woman, God values you. 
as a young lady, getting ready to fully mature into that teenagehood, God values you. Thanks. Mallory, you're welcome. I knew that. As a mom, as my wife, you are valued by God, but you're also valued by me. God shows us the significance of women and how important they are. And no, I'm not trying to give a hashtag women's rights. I'm just saying this is something that we talk about today in the 21st century. The importance of women's rights is not because somebody sat under a tree and had an epiphany that they needed to start a women's rights or women's suffrage movement. It came out of the church. It came out of people that worship Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they said, you know what? We need to start treating women with respect. That's where women's suffrage started. That's where, and I know it's gone a long way away from the Bible today. But the reality is, is that's where it started. And if it wasn't for Christians, we wouldn't even be having that kind of discussion today. We wouldn't even be saying 2020 or 2021 or 2022 or the year of the woman if it wasn't for scripture, if it wasn't for the Bible. So we often talk about the reason why we do not love somebody and we find these reasons. And one of those reasons sometimes as unfortunate as it is, is because of the gender of the person that we're trying to make submissive unto us. And that happens. And yet God, as Xavier brought up, is showing us the significance of women. A third thing is that the significance of women being shown to be the first people to see Jesus resurrected and to be the ones to witness him not being in the tomb, and it not be removed from the Bible shows us that scribes that would take biblical scriptures and they would write them out so that that way we'd have them generations later. And I think it was just a few weeks ago that more Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and that they're going through uh, those right now uh, to make sure that the Bible, it hasn't changed from back then to what it is today. And this shows us the validity, the importance, the truthfulness of what the Bible has is that it has not changed throughout the thousands and thousands of years since it first was written. When Moses wrote the Pentateuch, it's the same that we have today. When these gospels were written by John, it is the same then as it is today and something as what would be described in culture and the time of that period as insignificant as women being the first to witness Jesus's empty tomb or Mary Magdalene being able to see his risen body first, that would be something that a male-dominated world would remove because they don't see it as important. And yet the Bible hasn't been changed because John wrote it down and it has continued with us through this, the 21st century. Secondly, Jesus's appearance to the boys. What is the first thing Jesus says when he appears to the disciples? Peace. He does. He says, peace. Peace be with you. Walks in, throws up his fingers. Yo, peace, how's it going? <laughs> I believe with my whole heart that Jesus is fulfilling a scripture that was written in the book of Psalms. That is Psalm one. 22. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the throne of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Jesus is coming into a room where there is timidity, fear, trembling. These folks are scared. And the first word that he speaks is peace be with you. He also reminds us by saying peace be with you of another time that he said the same thing. It's found in Mark chapter 4 verses 35 through 39 where there is a violent storm going on all around the disciples. And as a result of that storm, Jesus is just simply asleep. And he's sleeping away and the disciples are panicking. And it says in John chapter 4, verses 35 through 39, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving with the crowd, they took with him in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus is doing the same thing when he first appears to his disciples. And as we have first talked about women being the first ones to see Jesus, women were also in this room that Jesus is appearing to his disciples at. The one person that was mentioned a little bit later on, we'll talk about it next week, is Thomas is not there. But otherwise, there are not just the 12 disciples. Remember, Jesus had more than just 12 disciples. I know we like to focus on just the 12, but the fact is he had so many more people that followed him. And Jesus is calming the emotional panic in that room at that moment. And he can do the same for us today. You can tell us of a time when everything is out of control, but yet Jesus brings us peace. Today, in the middle of the chaos of 2021, Jesus is still the grantor of peace. And in the midst of loss, Jesus still provides for us peace. If you are an emotional wreck and have given your life to Jesus, he is for you today still the author of peace. Next, Jesus says, I am sending you. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father, though Jesus is very much God, a paradox, the disciples are and were sent to the rest of the world. Generations later, Jesus is calling you and me to be a light among the darkness. We are to be a, the salt in the world of business. We are to be protectors of widows and orphans. No matter what our job is, we are representatives, disciples of Jesus in everything we say and everything we do. There is no time off. There's no holiday. There's no vacation from being a Christian. It is who we are when we ask Jesus into our lives. He also is saying through this passage of scripture, 
I am sending you, that we are to treat others with love. Asian, African, European, South American, Mexican, Canadian, Russian, on and on and on. We are to treat each other with love. But you say, well, so-and-so might harm me. They don't like me. Jesus loves even those who crucified him. If Jesus was and is sent by the Father to show us God, then Jesus sent his disciples to take the same message to others. He was not giving us the ability to choose and pick which parts of the good news we are to share, but we are to share everything that Jesus shared with us. And being treated and treating others with love is part of that. How does it make you feel to know that you are sent by Jesus the same way that God the Father sent Jesus into this world? What does that encourage you to do in life? To accomplish the task that God has set before us. So you have a desire to become a physics major. Yes. That is a God-given dream for you. Yes. Can you still be a light unto the world by studying physics? Yes. God called you a long time ago, Blair, to be a teacher, and you teach often. Can you be a light of who Jesus is to this world by being a teacher? Absolutely. God has called you, Aisha, not necessarily in the ministry. How can you, working for a call center, be a light of Jesus? Or does he call you to be the light unto the people that you talk with on the phone and your coworkers? Yes. Mallory, almost teenager. I can have four jobs to choose from. Four jobs to choose from. And in those jobs, can you still serve Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Yes. Is there any job out there that we can't serve God in doing? No, we can serve him in all, all jobs. In all jobs we can serve him, can't we? But for some reason, we like to say, well, you don't know how hard it is. <laughs> it's so difficult. If you worked with the same people that I work with, then you would understand how hard it is to be a witness for Jesus. We make up all these excuses, don't we? But Jesus tells us, I'm sending you as the Father sent me. And so are we responsible for our co-workers when it comes to being a light of Christ? Are we responsible for their actions or misrepresentations? No. Or are we responsible for ourselves? We're responsible for ourselves. We can't control other people because we are not Jesus. Exactly. I remember reading a book on St. Francis of Assisi earlier this year, and the question came to Francis. A person said, I've read the book of Ezekiel, and it says that if we don't tell people of their wrongs, and the sins that they're performing, then their blood is on our hands. What do you say about that? And Francis gave a wonderful answer that I wholeheartedly agree with. He says, we show them their sins by the way we follow Christ with our own lives. We are the example. We are the witness. We don't do it by yelling at them, hitting them over the head with a Bible, defriending them and saying, I'm never going to be that person's friend again. Next, Jesus in the room with his disciples said, as he breathed upon them, I give you the Holy Spirit or receive the Holy Spirit. Have you ever gotten a gift that you never used? Yeah. Yes. I did. I can remember very vividly getting a gift from my daddy, my grandmother on my father's side. And it was a shirt 
that had two buttons. I can remember it. It was the ugliest shirt I've ever seen in my life. It had two buttons. It had a collar. And then it had a band around the waist that was supposed to hug onto your skin. I lifted it up out of the box and it had a band that went around the bicep part of the arms. And I lifted that thing up and I was like, I do not want this at all. And I remember saying, obviously as a young man, I lied to my grandma and I said, thank you so much for the wonderful gift. <laughs> and I put it back in the box and I hid it under my bed and there it stayed until one day when we moved and I never touched it and it eventually went into the trash. I can remember that. <laughs> Sorry, Grandma. It leads me to a question specifically about the Holy Spirit and about gifts that we've gotten but never used. Is it plausible for us to say if we've been given a gift but we never actually received it. In other words, we never actually utilized the gift. We never, we never took it out of its box. We never used the gift. Is it possible to say that we never really received it? Jesus is gifted us with the Holy Spirit. And if we don't allow him into our lives, the Holy Spirit into our lives, he's not a gift. He's like that shirt that I got from my grandma that I stuck underneath my bed and then eventually just threw away and never used once. Can we treat the Holy Spirit that way? Yeah. But if the Holy Spirit is 100% God, and he is, then that's really the way we're treating. And I mean, I'm not trying to be super heavy here and be like, you've got to use the Holy But think about it. If we don't utilize the person of the Holy Spirit, aren't we really not utilizing the fullness of what God has given us, gifted us with? So what, what are the Holy Spirit's jobs for us? What does he do for us? He gives us love. Yeah. Joy. Okay. Peace. Uh -huh. Our suffering. Uh -huh. Gentleness. Uh -huh. Goodness. Uh -huh. Meekness. Uh -huh. Faithfulness. Uh -huh. And self-control. What else does he do? Boldness. Okay. He's our comforter. Yeah. He's our counselor. He gives us other gifts, like the gifts of preaching and teaching and uh, other things that are mentioned in Acts and Acts through the rest of the yeah. New Testament. Right. And so in that, in the Holy Spirit gives us all of those. It's not just like the evidence of speaking in tongues is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He gives us everything right whenever we receive him. If you receive the Holy Spirit, you have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he'll guide you how to use them whenever it's time to use them. So he gifts us the Holy Spirit. And last thing Jesus says at the conclusion of this uh, time with his disciples is to forgive. Immediately after being executed, Jesus t tells his followers to forgive. Going so far as to say, for if you forgive somebody of their sins, they will be forgiven. And don't get me wrong, I know there's more to that. But think about how powerful that is. If Aisha, if you forgive somebody of the sin that they committed against you, then that means in heaven, God forgives them. That's powerful. It also says that if you withhold forgiveness, that person won't be forgiven. Right. So if you don't forgive a person, 
then in heaven, they won't be forgiven. That's power. Do you feel the gravity of that? Do you feel how strong that bond is of getting to know God? Because I, I mean, we have to think about this in the signs of how grossly negligent does a sin's weight have to be before we cannot forgive somebody? How horrific of a sin does it have to be before we will not forgive somebody? That does not mean that you should, like, if you don't like this person and they did do something wrong to you, it doesn't mean that you should purposely not forgive them because you don't want them to go to heaven. You should forgive them because then that means that you're as bad as they are if you don't forgive them. Yes. Thank you for summing that up so succinctly and perfectly because that's what I was getting ready to go into. <laughs> you're welcome. Because what is the scale that we measure sins by? Do we say, that person is my worst enemy? And if that person is your worst enemy and you're like, I'm not going to forgive their sin because I'm a better person than they are, whose scale are you on that all of a sudden you're better and they're worse? And if you're better than they are, what are your sins that are keeping you as a better person? Because you know you have sin. We all have sin. And if we aren't asking for forgiveness, if we aren't, constantly repenting of our sin and asking God to forgive us, then that's where God throws that scale out. And he says, look, all sin is equal. Lying is as equal as murder. Rape is as equal to giving false testimony about somebody and gossiping. They're all equal. So whose scale are you all of a sudden going to? Are you going to the world's scale? That's kind of scary if you are, because the world doesn't even know where it is. We're sinfuls. Today it could be a sin. Tomorrow it could be a, a, a benefit. The next day, what was a benefit today could be a sin. I constantly think that one day people are going to look at me in the, in the long-term future as a horrible, rotten person because I drink coffee. And they're going to one day say, drinking coffee is a sin. And all of a sudden I'm going to turn into, in about 100, 200 years from now, I'm going to be the most vile person that there ever was because I drink coffee. That's what we've done today. We look at people and we tear down their statues and we tear down their reputations and we take their names off of schools all because of one thing that was acceptable a hundred years ago and today is a sin. So what is it going to be that makes me look like a, a horrible, vile sinner in a hundred years from now or 200 years from now? And the words of the way Mallory said it so beautifully is that Jesus is dying on the cross. And one of the last phrases he says is, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's pretty powerful. That Jesus is forgiving the man who took a nail and drove it into his hands. He's forgiving the man that put a crown of thorns and made it and then shoved it on his head. He's forgiving the man that punched him in the face. He's forgiving the man that ripped out his beard. He's forgiving the Pharisees and Sadducees and the other Jewish people that yelled, crucify him. Jesus is forgiving them. If God sent Jesus to this world to do that, and Jesus is sending us to continue to fulfill the, the word of the Lord, then what kind of suffering are we going to be under? And if we aren't, we're pretty blessed. Hashtag blessed. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. Yeehaw.
Jesus stuck it to the man. He's like, I forgive you because you don't know what you do. You're sticking it to the man. <laughs> Jesus, the real rock star, cool rock and roll, sticking it to the man. Is there anything else that you see in this passage of scripture of Jesus' resurrection? I mean, what a powerful day. He was put into a tomb. And just a, three days later, he was raised from the dead. He's alive and he appeared not just to Mary Magdalene, but also to his disciples. And as we'll see next week, he also appears to even more people. This man who was considered dead. Close us some prayer, Mallory. Okay. Thank you, Jesus, for this day and for every single day and that we will all worship God in that whenever God comes on earth, we shall all be happy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.